Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good morning to you. How are you this morning? You know, I'm doing pretty well considering uh, fall is over, golf is over. We're in we're in the beginning of winter here with snow and below zero temperatures. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing great. Well, look, I mean, by popular demand and the demand of our audience, <laughs> And the demands of actually telling a life story in a in a format like a radio show, uh, we are we are destined to go to part two of the Arnie Sherman story this week. As you'll to refresh our our listeners' recollection and memories, we covered Arnie is telling his life story from growing up in New York um, and just the different work and jobs and interests he's had over the years, his family. All the way through to his uh, his finding the University of Cincinnati as his college of choice, and uh, actually his first big relationship, which uh, where he met his his first wife in Cincinnati, and that's kind of where we left it, Arnie. Well, we went a little bit further, actually, Scott. We Did went we? In the, into the draft and my first uh, summer job outside of uh, uh, college after I graduated. That's but, right. Uh, it's more than just me telling my story because that's hard to do. It's your craft in asking questions about my history and life to date that has sort of led the charge on how this conversation has developed. Well, and you could have done it many different ways. And I'm taking notes because when we're done with me, uh, you're next up. And uh, I might approach it completely opposite. I might start with the day we record it and work backwards to when you were born. <laughs> Mine's not as interesting as yours. I'll be oh, sure. we, we will make it. We will make it interesting. Well, anyway, look, I am so thrilled that we're doing this, Arnie, as you know. Um, when we come back, we will start with part two of the Arnie Sherman story and saga. Back after this. Hunter Bay Con- For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, Sherman, we are back. Um, before before we can begin part two, there are a couple. There are, are a few highlights about part one that were left out, and I don't necessarily need to go into them, but I just want to sort of toss them in there because I was thinking back on what I said, and there were a, a few highlights. One of them was the opportunity to play basketball in a pickup game with the big O Oscar Robertson when I was a freshman in college. Sure. That was a, a memorable life, you know, rem- remembering experience. I had a chance at uh, LaGuardia Airport to talk with uh, Bobby Kennedy during his run for president and uh, for a psychology project in college on on the psychology of humor. I had a chance to interview Bill Cosby, which was an interesting, (laughs) which was an interesting experience way back then. So those were three things that popped up that surrounded, you know, the uh, the narrative that we've uh, already covered that we've uncovered here. Yeah. It's interesting, but I mean, that's the thing. Like if we were to say Oscar Robertson, Bill Cosby, and I think we're going to have a couple of other names that we're going to insert into today's interview. Yes. Arnie's, Arnie has uh, not only rubbed shoulders and met and worked with some very prominent people, 
but he's also found himself in some interesting situations and unlikely situations, which is the Zelig quality that I tried to talk about and you've talked about on the first show, right? How do you find yourself in these situations, Arnie? Like, well, I try to I try to live a life, you know, uh, worth living, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and uh, uh, t- take the cliched road less traveled. And um, if I see an opportunity to expand my experiences, uh, expand my exposure to uh, to different people, I've I've tried to take those during my life. My first the first political campaign I handed out flyers for was when uh, John Lindsay, who was a Republican, was running for mayor of New York in 1965, and as a Republican, he had the endorsement, interestingly enough, of the Liberal Party. And in fact, the posters that I was handing out were posters that were done by Peter Max for his mayoral campaign. And so, um, you know, back there, politics were less strident and the divisions were you could be a liberal Republican running against a conservative Democrat. That doesn't exist anymore in our right. current political landscape. But it was, you know, and so I try to take advantage of, uh, uh, you know, situations and try to insert myself into them, not in a way that was gratuitous, but because I would find it interesting. So curiosity, curiosity yeah. is something that really, I guess, is it's fair to say, kind of drives you, in a sense, learning new things, trying new things. You've never been afraid to try new things. No. My whole career has, has bounced from different work focus or foci from doing youth work to doing uh, international leadership work to doing university work at the University of Montana and several other universities to, you know, doing finance and managing foreign investment money to radio show and podcast show. You know, I've tried to, I've tried to take advantage of, of things that have come my way and work with relationships that I've had to, uh, to make my life interesting because when it's all said and done, you know, when you're uh, when you're the downside of a life, uh, you want to look back and say, um, you know, I have very little regrets or no regrets. I mean, that's the best anybody can say about their life. You know, if they're if they're looking back and reviewing it, you want to say, uh, you know, uh, it was a life worth living. I wouldn't do it much differently, and I don't have any regrets. Arnie, take us back to Cincinnati now. We're now looking at the late 60s, early 70s, right? If I'm yes. time certain, yeah. you're in your early 20s. Because um, right. you went to college early. You went to yes. graduate high school early. So you were talking about your first job and the work that you were doing there. Um, what was that experience like for you? Because, I mean, as, as, talking about a series of firsts, what, what was that job like? I mean, you were really thrown into the lion's den. Well, I I was working, as I mentioned last time, at the uh, Ohio Bureau of Vocational Rehabilitation, and I had a case, a very, a very heavy caseload because it had been unattended, and it was people, as I mentioned, people waiting for prosthetic limbs, people waiting for training materials so they could go to vocational school. There were people that were, uh, you know, just out of prison that I was dealing with. I mean, I was 22 years old. I'd buy guys. uh, I, I would. I would underwrite or, or support buying barber tools, barber shears and scissors for somebody who wanted to be trained as a barber, and the next day he would sell it for heroin, and I'd have to go and deal with that sort of stuff. So I was thrown in, in very unusual circumstances, and one of the things that I remember learning was I had a psychology degree from a very good psychology department at a good university, good enough that you know NYU was interested in me for their doctorate program, but there was nothing that I learned at school that prepared me for what I was dealing with. I mean, right. you can study, you know, Adlerian or, or, or uh, you know Freudian psychology and and you know dissect the human psyche and learn about the id, ego, and superego. But when there's a guy standing across a pool table with a knife in his hand, not wanting you to take his stuff away from him, there's nothing that you learn can help you deal with that. You just have to right. use your own common sense and your own aggregate, you know, knowledge based on your life and. And if you're not used to that kind of experience, it took a while to uh, adjust. But I found it fascinating. 
Who did you, know, you rely after- on for feedback and who did you rely on for feedback in series so, so young? To bounce, I mean, did you have a good a good supervisor there or a good mentor yeah, there? You know, I really didn't. Um, but but um, my next job, I, I sort of stood out because of the work I was doing, and I was under fire. And one, uh, there was a halfway house program that still exists in Cincinnati today called Talbert House. It's a it's a huge uh, agency that works with. Uh, with uh, ex-convicts in uh, the criminal justice system. And they reached out to me and said, uh, would you like to come work for us? You know, you look like a guy that gets things done and throw yourself into the breach, and would you come work for us? There was a guy uh, uh, who's no longer with us named uh, Bubba, Bubba Henderson, who was a former deputy warden of a prison in Alabama who had come up to be the number two person at this law at this program. And I thought it would be fascinating to do. So they installed me as the the uh, assistant director of a halfway house for ex-convicts. And I'm still 22 years old. And all of a sudden, I'm working 70 hours a week with 15 guys who are being released from prison, who require, uh, you know, supervision and transitional help into the community. And, uh, you know, I just found it, a, you know, a very interesting experience. And while I had a supervisor, they, they all had their hands full. I mean, I was thrown into the breach kind of like, uh, you know, right. swim or drowned. You know, and I had many, many interesting experiences, you know, in, in that environment and that sort of job. And, and really, I did it for two years. And at that point in time, I was really kind of burnt out. I mean, I had no life outside of it, really. I was, I was working sometimes 15 hours a day, six or seven days straight. You know, supervising the house because the halfway house had to be person full time. Sure. So, so, and did you keep in touch with people from those from that from that early role um, with the halfway house? And with yeah. The- in fact, in fact, the the executive secretary to the the, the executive director there, a woman named uh, Mary Kay Meekum. The last name is because she married a, a good friend of mine who uh, who later worked for me. Mary, who I've known since 1970, we're still in touch and talk and see each other. And her and her husband would work for me also. We we stay in touch. And, you know, those for all of us were our sort of our formative years. And you're looking at a time where there's great social unrest going on and there's, sure. you know, racial tension. And uh, I'm a young white guy working in a halfway house that's mostly – um, non-white residents and trying to relate to them and help them to make the transition. You know, at night I was going to get my master's degree at Xavier University because I couldn't go to New York at that point. I already missed my opportunity to uh, to get a doctorate. I had given up my uh, my um, occupational deferment to get thrown in the draft, and I didn't get drafted. And so I was able to take this job at the halfway house, and I was, you know, I was working. So... Um, that kind of, uh, you know, I threw myself into that. And it was very interesting because my my friends, I realized later on that after I left there that for two years, all my friends, all my contacts, all my stories, all my jokes, all my music, all my daily experiences were with ex-convicts. In some cases, convicts. They were all convicts. They hadn't been released yet. This was the 90-day pre-release experience that they were having. They were murderers, armed robbers, rapists. All these guys were there, and I'm spending, you know, from morning till night with them. So it was really, it was really kind of an, you know, interesting experience and and uh, learning about cultures that I had not personally been engaged with. Sure, sure. And what so. With that, with that first kind of that series of jobs, when did you go from Cincinnati? When did you move? Where did you move to next? And what was the job that took you there? Well, a, a job opened in the in the uh, in the adjoining county, which was Butler County, Ohio, which was a fairly large county. It, it's three four hundred thousand people, so it's not a rural county. It, and uh, they were starting a, a countywide youth agency. Back in those days, there was a lot of federal money going to try to work with uh, disadvantaged uh, youth. And uh, uh, there was money to uh, start a uh, what, what at the time were called youth service bureaus. Sure. And uh, I applied to be the director of that agency, and I lied about my age. I realized there was somebody else competing for the job who was 40, and I'm 24. So I felt I had to say I was at least 25. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I fibbed a little about my age, and I got elected 
chosen by the board of directors to start this new youth agency that ended up adding a runaway shelter to it. I ran one of the first half dozen runaway shelters in the United States and was the first co-ed one. So it was a kind of an interesting, that was an interesting experience. I kind of built an agency from the ground up that became nationally recognized and award-winning. And right. uh, um, I was able to apply, you know, what I learned at the halfway house and at school. And, uh, you know, that's where I met Linda. She was the first person uh, that, that I hired to come work for me at the Butler County. I didn't know her. but she What came year is this? This is 1972. This is way back in the previous century. We're all kids running around, running. Uh, as I look back, I was I am shocked that the probation and parole officers in town, that the schools, that all of these folks were willing to allow in a conservative county, they were willing to allow us into their institutions to help their kids. I'm not right. even sure we could do it again today. I mean, you know. Linda, who was running around in those days in an, in an army jacket with a peace sign on it and, and uh, you know, bell-bottom jeans, was going to schools, you know, talking to kids and working with the you know, school administrators. And I can't imagine what they really thought about. We were pretty, I wouldn't say cocky. We were just excited about the opportunity to try to do something that hadn't been done before. And for those that don't know who Linda is, Linda is your, your wife. Yes. And, and we... And and where, you met her in 1972. Yes. Where where is she originally from? She was from Cincinnati, and uh, I went up there to speak after I got the job. And her and her mother came to an event that I spoke at, and then later I was interviewing. And she she uh, had been working uh, at a uh, a group home, and so she had some experience. And uh, you know, she had gone to uh, she had grown up in the in the Ohio area. She had gone to Ohio State. Uh, she had worked in a, a children's home, um, so she had some good experience, and, and uh, I immediately hired her and brought her on board to uh, to work at the uh, at the agency. It was a small agency to begin with. Right. We opened up other offices. We had all kinds of interesting programs. We had some innovative programs that today don't even exist that we tried back in those days. Oh, For example, that? we had uh, when kids ran, ran away from home, that was probably one of the most traumatic experiences that they could have. And uh, usually they were running from something rather than to something. And uh, when they would be picked up by the police or somebody and brought to our runaway shelter, they were in crisis and their parents would show up and there would be or if they had parents and there would be some traumatic experience going on. And we created a program that allowed uh, that had family counselors available 24 seven. So when the family showed up at that traumatic time, there was a trained professional counselor there to mitigate and mediate what was going on. And we found that to be very effective, you know, rather than trying to, you know, wait two days and everybody has a different, you know, right in the middle of what, with all this emotion, have somebody professional there to try to, you know, get, get to the bottom of it all. Sure. So we did things like that, and and launched some early youth employment programs, and uh, and uh, did a lot of court diversion projects. We were doing a lot of fun stuff and innovative stuff. And again, I'm shocked and surprised. It was probably our our false bravado that we were knew what we were doing that allowed, you know, all of these other organizations and agencies allowed us to, you know, ply our craft when everybody there who was working was under you know under 25. Right. <laughs> so when you met Linda, she worked for you. Nineteen seventy-two. Yes. How yes. long did you stay at that at, at that agency together? Or how long did you stay at that agency? And then how long was she there? Uh, well, we had um, we had a, uh, we were involved in work and and in, in the same social circle. She was married, and I was married at the time at the very beginning. I right. ended up getting divorced. Not because of her. I wasn't. I wasn't dating her. Or I wasn't involved with her. She was married, and, and her husband at the time was one of my best friends. And then over time, over about a three, four year period, she ended up uh, getting divorced, and and we didn't really start dating until about six months after she was divorced. And when it became clear that it was going to be serious, um, I, I kind of we we came to the mutual conclusion that she would leave the agency that we wouldn't have any kind of conflict of interest. There were a lot of other employees we were dating. You know, uh, it looked like you know we were probably going to get married, and so it wouldn't make any sense for uh, for her to continue there. And I, we we both stayed there till uh, till 1976, and and then uh, um, left 
and went to Florida. My father, who had never asked me to do really much of anything, he he, he never asked me to help him or to or to I need help. And he was running a, a business in Florida and asked me to come down and help him do it. And so I thought it would be a good change of pace. I've been doing youth work for, you know, for uh, six, seven years since I graduated college, youth or criminal justice work. And I thought I would want a little change. And so we moved to Florida to uh, where in Florida. Down in South Florida, and you know, right around Boca Raton, I lived. In, we lived in Carl Gables. Oh my gosh! And my father was in the carpet business, and his and his brother was in the furniture business, and I got involved in that for about nine months, and and uh, couldn't wait to get out of it. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, I don't know how you would ever ever do retail, knowing you the way I know you. You would well, because uh, because the family kind of asked me to, and they never asked me to do anything before. And I was I, I was burnt out with what I was doing, and I thought it would be a you know a decent transition. I hadn't lived around my family since I was a senior in high school, you know. And uh, you know, at this point, I'm 28 years uh, you know 28 years old almost, and uh, so right. I decided to go there. But you know, and I did it, and it was interesting. But I didn't want to do it. It was a good learning experience. I got out of it as quickly as I could, and uh, uh, actually uh, went back to Ohio for a short time. And then uh, I was offered a job in Washington D.C. to be uh, deputy director of the National Youth Work Alliance to do lobbying and advocacy work on behalf of kids. Got it. And you were. <laughs> and what's interesting, knowing you the way I know you. So Florida then is not just about work and where you're living, but what was the, I know you love food. I know you love sports. Would you do music? Music scene was pretty good. Matter of fact, it was the time Linda was in the hospital in Florida. Uh, They thought uh, that she had cancer and was going to die, which fortunately turned out that was not the case. It was a misdiagnosis, but she was in the hospital and uh, Billy Joel was performing in Miami and, I snuck in the hospital and took her down the back stairway and the and the and the fire escape and we went down. Uh, you know, I brought some jeans and t-shirt and stuff for her. And we went down and saw Billy Joel in concert. Oh, yeah. you know, there's always a thread of music in you know in everything. You know, at the halfway house, music was running all the time. At the youth agency, music was running all the time. You know, yep. college. You know, obviously, college experience. Uh, putting on your Craig. Headphones and listening to a whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin and all that sort of stuff was you know, it was always a there was always a, I could link what was going on in life to record albums and music and and you know talk about that for a second because yeah. that's something we didn't talk about on the first call was right even from the get go as a, as you know growing up in the New York City area you spent a lot of time going and seeing shows in in and around Manhattan but also on Long Island right. Yes, there was a there was a club called the World at Roosevelt Center, and groups like Jay and the Americans, and and um, you know uh, the Four Seasons, and Little Anthony and the Imperials, and uh, uh, groups like that. Joey D and the Starlighters, Chubby Checker, all these early '60s groups were would, would perform at, at, at those places. And obviously, uh, you know, the British Invasion came along, and that was you know sort of tempered by what was happening down in the village with. Uh, you know, folk music and then leading into, you know, Velvet Underground, Nico and, and Lou Reed kind of things. And then the spoken word, there was spoken word albums. People don't pay attention to those much anymore. But back in those days, you could buy, you know, um, records of Woody Woody Allen and Lenny Bruce and uh, Shelley Berman and Bob Newhart and uh, Carl, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks doing the 2,000-year-old man and later Richard Pryor and... Uh, Sam Kennison, all that stuff was going on when you couldn't see those people in, you know, in person. So there were different, you know, different times, different moods. I can remember the first time I heard a Beatles song exactly where I was, the first time I heard Billy Joel, the first time I heard, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, the first time I heard Velvet Underground, first time I heard, uh, uh, you know, uh, Led, you know, all those kind of groups tied into you know, parts in the life. James Taylor. James Taylor was a big thing in college when Sweet Baby James came out. I think, and I thought, I think that musicians and singers, songwriters, certainly in that era, in the, really that original era where they really, that's where they came out of was the 60s and 70s. They were like cultural icons. They were touchstones. They were speaking for the population. 
Well, I can tell you one one thing that would stand out. You've probably had experiences like that. It's 1973. I'm driving down the highway. There was a radio station in Cincinnati called Jelly Pudding. That was their nickname. It was, uh, it was and uh, they said we have a, a, a record from a new uh, uh, artist from uh, New York City. Uh, Billy Joel and it was Captain Jack. Oh wow! And I actually pulled off this off the highway and stopped to listen to that song on the radio and then drove to a record store and bought that album and bought the record. Yeah. And cause you yeah. Didn't spoke to you. It was your life. Right. I was a kid growing up in New York who was watching people out, you know, around, around him, you know, getting into drugs and getting high and, you know, feeling, you know, it was, it was sort of a musical representation in, in a weird way of the graduate with Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. you know, sort of lost, lost soul, not figuring out, you know, what to do with his life and you know you're 24 and your mother still makes your bed was one of the line and I knew guys like that I wasn't one of them because I left I was gone by 17 but I could I could it resonated with me and of course Billy Joel grew up in the next town from where I went to high school on Long Island so he was really well he grew up in around Massapequa and you know Oyster Bay and one of his songs he uses in the ballad ability kid he talks about it from a, from a town known as Oyster Bay Long Island he was from that whole area Arnie so, uh, let me just do a quick uh, idea yeah. our guest is Arnie Sherman on his own show what do you know we're doing his <laughs> life story part two, part 2 Arnie when you so you know in the 60s and certainly in the late 60s you know, as music was really becoming so important to the culture and to the politics and just, you know, and you were kind of in the throes of it, whether it was in Cincinnati or New York or elsewhere, like for big events, like with Woodstock, what, where were you for Woodstock? Like, did you contemplate going to Woodstock? Or you? I was already working and couldn't go. I mean, (laughs) you know, it was responsible. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was working for the state of Ohio at that time and I just couldn't go. I knew about Woodstock, you know, and, uh, um, you know, there were I I drove onto college campuses where the National Guard were, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, attacking students. I was on Ohio State campus when the National Guard were throwing tear gas on students in the back in those days. And, of course, you know, memorialized in, uh, you know, Kent State memorialized in the song by Crosby, Stills, Nash, you know, Ohio. Right. Linda was on the Ohio State campus when that was going on. She was a student there. She was involved in, you know, peace protests and that sort of thing. I, from college until now, I have never gone more than a few weeks in my whole life without having a full-time, at least one full-time job. I was going to say, it felt, feels like you had to grow up pretty fast. Well, I, I needed to because my parents weren't very well off, and I had to pay. You know, I had a scholarship, and I actually, at a point in time, when I was working two or three jobs in college, was sending money home to my family. You know, so it was, it, you know, it was a, it was a, a tough experience. I felt a sense of responsibility. You know, like for example, a lot of my friends in college were. You know, I couldn't drink my first year, but later on, I was not a drinker. Uh, I don't think I've I've had two six-packs of beer my whole life. I didn't smoke dope till I got out of college. Everybody was smoking dope. I just didn't do it. I was too, you know, I, 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 my mind was, if I do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get lazy. I'm, I'm not going to be able to keep these jobs. I'm not going to be able to support myself. I'm not going to be able to continue on this path. And, you know, I was pretty motivated to try to do, not make something of my life, but, but have a life, you know, worth living. Sure. You know, my, you know, my grand my grandfather sort of instilled that in me. You know, when you know, who, did, who was the who was the influence? Was it your grandfather? Or your yeah, father? he won. You know, when he he was once sick in the hospital and people thought he was going to die, and you know, I, I was very shocked by all of that. And uh, there was this poignant moment where he wore this little ruby pinky ring. He took it off and gave it to me and said, "I'm not going to need this anymore." And that was very wow. emotional for me. You know, he didn't, fortunately, he didn't die for, you know, he was ill, but he, he lived for three more very productive years. But he said to me, just promise me one thing, you know, that, that uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you won't listen to what other people say and you will essentially, you know, take the road less traveled. And then he looked at me and said something that I, that I remember to this day and think of often. He looked at me and he was about, uh, he was about 66 years, 67 years old at the time, and I was, uh, you know, 21 or something like that, and uh, right. 22. And he said, "It was. It feels like it was just yesterday when I was your age." Oh my God! You know, and I and I felt like I really felt like I had my finger had been, 
you know, sort of stuffed into an electric light socket. Because I realized at that moment there was this sort of connectivity that it is like 40 years, 45 years goes by like nothing. And now I can tell you it does. Looking back now, I'd say it's, it seems like the other day when these things we were talking about now happened, but they're, you know, they're 40 years ago. Yeah, you mark so, time based on different life events. and Yeah, it, life different events. things that popped up, different people that you have contact with, different experiences. You know, it's you know it's mostly connections emotionally, like with music or musical theater. I used to spend a lot of time listening. I could memorize lines from you know, almost every Broadway musical that was out there. You know, Broadway for your for your generation was was really important show to. Well, there were things like West Side Story. Right. You know, that was interesting. Hair. There were there was Hair. There was Jesus Christ Superstar. There were Lenny on Broadway. I, I saw Lenny. I used to go to Broadway as much as I could. I would see as many shows, you know, Death of a Salesman with Lee J. Cobb, you know. I mean, great actors and great shows, you know, Camelot with Richard Burton, you know, playing King Arthur. Those kinds of things had very uh, meaningful, you know, connection to me. Of you know, and then I saw people out in real life that, you know, also were – you know, sort of like mentors or heroes or, you know, if I had a chance to be around any of them, I would I would take the opportunity. Well, you've said, you said on our last show that writing was such an, a passion for you, writing, mm -hmm. creative writing, and certainly storytelling. Um, yes. In that you seem to really enjoy, whether it be a, a sports story, right, of your, of your beloved Yankees or, like you're saying, shows, you know, Broadway shows, these are all story-driven kind of, um, sure. And people's life. You know, we've had Uncle Harry on the show, you right. know, my late Uncle Harry, and he had lived a life with many stories, many, many interesting stories from, you know, as you know, from being at Yankee Stadium when Lou Gehrig gave his I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth to being, you know, in World War Two at, uh, um, you know, in, in the Pacific Theater and, uh, you know, joining the the army in 1940 and being a sports broadcaster. I mean, he had a lot of interesting stories. And it's easier to relate to stories than to, you know, words or situations. The story kind of captures a, a, a point in time uh, that uh, that has a message to it. Do you think we've, we as a society have lost the both ability to listen but to tell a good story? Yeah, I really do. We're all, all – well, because of social media, it's all tweets, you know, 200 characters or whatever. It's tweets and uh, TikTok and headline news and all those sort of things. People don't have the time or patience. You know, even in the case of doing this, there's some trepidation about a guy who stretches out to two, two or more shows. I mean, who's going to listen to 90 minutes of anything? But I, think, and, but I think the, 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 the devil is in the details, certainly, that you need a longer format type story to be able to tell a good story and to be able to provide more insight into who you are. Well, for certain people, but I'm not but I'm not so sure the younger generation. I mean, I'd like to see the demographics of who watch 60 Minutes, which is probably the most, uh, you know, formative news show that allows you to explore a topic, at least, you know, a topic for 15 minutes, which is a long time on TV. But I bet you the, I bet you the, the uh, number of people under 30 who watch 60 Minutes is very narrow. It's very narrow. Well, you know what was interesting? As you were talking about, comedians, uh, certainly in the 60s and 70s, and how the long-playing record, the album, was the format that you kind of discovered Woody Allen or Richard Pryor, Cheech and Chong, all these like Steve Allen, Shelley, all these kind of, um, you know, these, uh, these influencers, if you will. Right. Now, young people don't even, you know, they have to, Netflix or Prime, uh, Prime Video is how they discover social commentary, uh, commentators that are like comedians. So they have to, the, the pictures have to kind of accompany the words. Um, and, and to me, it's, there's something lost in having to almost uh, present too much of the of the storyteller. I'd almost rather hear it just audio wise and imagine what what's happening well that's the way it used to be i mean they, you know there used to be tabloid type magazines but you know you would you would learn about new music by listening to the radio that's right. how you found out about new music you would learn about 
new movie stars by going to the movies. You wouldn't you wouldn't say, boy, I've just read about this great guy. I got to go see him. Right. You would go to the movies and then say, I like this person. I'm going to keep an eye out for him in the future. There just wasn't as much exposure to what we have now in terms of the inundation of, of you know, where things source from. I mean, as you know, somebody can go on uh, a YouTube channel and have a billion downloads and uh, and a lot of people have never heard of that person before that happened. Yeah. Well, I think what's, you're 100% correct. Certainly the younger generation needs that accompaniment of the visual, whether it's a video or what have you. But I think um, you and I talk about this. Podcasts are great. Like audio on demand is great because it still allows for the theater of the mind to kind of let, let my imagination kind of really further engage me into what's being said or what story is being told, which that's important. You kind of get it. I think it, it, it hits you differently than if everything is just presented to you and thrown at you as a picture or a visual. Well, the other thing that's different from, you know, my formative years and now is, you know, you didn't, you could listen to the radio and, and your family, if they could afford it, would have record albums. Right. And when the radio wasn't on, you played the records, you could only play what you had. And right. so I had a chance to listen to, you know, records and music from 30 years earlier, 20 years earlier than, you know, so stuff in the 20s and 30s. Um, and and my parents' tastes were some of, that I acquired because of that. Sure. Now it doesn't necessarily flow the same way. Well, exactly. And you back then, if you identified with what your parents like, people would have thought you're square. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Whereas now sure. parents and kids kind of like the same music. And in fact, they're meeting about music. You know, that's well, the funny thing was, I mean, rock and roll, as you know, changed all that in the 50s and 60s. It's right. still here. You know, rock and roll is here to stay. Before that, you were listening to Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley, And, you know, maybe Frank Sinatra was the pinnacle of all of that. But once rock and roll came in, you know, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry and all that. And then music continued, you know, you can make an argument that while there's all kinds of permutations, it's still all some form of that that's still here. Rhythm and blues, rap, right. you know, it's all, it's, so you can go back to the 80s and 90s and listen to Run listen to run DMC, and it's not that much different. If you go back 30 years from when we were kids, you're listening to waltzes. You're listening <laughs> to a whole different style of music. And you're watching Fred Astaire and, you know, that sort of thing. So, Right. And rock, and roll, I think, rock and roll is about rebellion and rebelling against your parents. Right. And rebellion is still part of the music scene in one form or the other. So let's so let's go back a little bit. <laughs> and by the way, we're having memories. We're going through memories with Arnie Sherman, part two of our story. Arnie, yeah. we're in the mid seventies, you're or early seventies mid to early seventies, you're in Florida, you're in Coral Gables. Right. Seventy six. So seventy six. Where did you go from there? Like where I got an, I got a job offer to go to go to Washington D.C. to run the National Youth to be deputy director of the National Youth Work Alliance. We moved to Washington D.C. We live in a 1765 R Street in Dupont Circle, and that lasted for about nine or ten months. And it was a tough a tough job, and it was a it was a um, it was interesting, but it wasn't really my forte, and I wasn't in charge. And up until that point, by now, I've been running things. And I was the deputy director there. And then a position opened in Chicago running the, the probably the most well-known local coalition of youth and children or agencies called Youth Network Council of Chicago. And I, I, they asked me to come out and interview, and, I, and they offered me the job. And uh, I moved to Chicago to run a coalition of about 100 youth-serving agencies in Chicago. And then I immediately expanded that to a statewide organization called the Illinois Collaboration on Youth. That was in 19 – that was created in 79. It still exists to this day as a, as a voice, an advocate for children and youth. Um, in the state of Illinois. What, year, what was that, like 77? I, I moved there in 77 and uh, and stayed there till 82. Did you work with the local government, with the mayor, Mayor Daly, and the uh, and that whole... Well, when I got there, uh, um, um, was it the older... The mayor was Belandic and then became Janie Byrne and then became Harold Washington before the Daly. But, oh. but Richie Daly was the U.S. state's attorney, and I did work with him a lot. 
Did you? And probably one of my greatest accomplishments is I helped lead a coalition that re- that rewrote the uh, juvenile code in the state. So at, at the time I got there, um, kids who uh, uh, basically juveniles were, were in many, many places put in adult jails and adult lockups. And uh, about 50 to 60 kids every year died from being in those facilities. They hung themselves or were beaten or there was some, some tragedy. And, and about 50, 55 uh, kids a year were uh, died as a result of being put in. Can you imagine you're a runaway, you're a 15-year-old boy, and you get runaway in a, you know, a, a rural county and they throw you in jail with adults for a couple of days? Oh, you know, it was just like forever. Yeah, yeah. So, so I helped. I helped rewrite the juvenile code in Illinois, and and the year after that was done, I think there were no, no there were none, no kids were uh, were put in those adult facilities. So I felt very good about helping to accomplish that. Then I moved on to Kansas City for a couple of years, running a national uh, children's organization, and uh, and then I started getting involved oh, in internet. Oh, slow down! You're going too fast for me. Well, we got to, we're, we're running. We're only up to halfway through, and we're uh, you know our time is limited today. Oh, we're going to do the third show. But anyway, <laughs> um, Arnie, so you're in Chicago. You're doing all this stuff in Chicago. You've always it's, you've always worked with youth, right? You've always worked with with. Well, with up, I, I I basically did that for half of my career, and then moved into youth leadership work, and then into business. There was an opportunity to transfer into uh, to doing business, and and I felt that I had done as much as I could as a, as a youth service advocate and a youth agency manager. And one of the difficult parts of that was you were constantly out raising money. It was a never ending uh, life of raising money, trying to run an organization, trying to manage it and raise money, which is a whole different process than having customers or clients because the customers and clients of these agencies weren't the people that were paying right third party paying. So you had to convince a third party to pay for these other services. What motivated you though to do your work with with young people, right? Because it's was was there some uh, you know? Uh, well, I well, I started I started working with uh, with even in my first job working with uh, the Bureau of Vocational right. Rehabilitation, I had youth and adults as part right. of my caseload. Then I was working with you know ex cons for two years, and then this opportunity to start a youth agency. You know, I had learned at school and and in my experiences, you know, how disenfranchised. Young people were. They don't vote. They don't have, you know, they don't have that kind of influence. And lots of rules, regulations, policy, you know, that affect their lives were being promulgated without any of their input. And they needed, a, a, you know, a spokesperson. And so I just, it just felt like a natural fit for me to, uh, to, you know, be in youth work, even though my training had been in psychology and I liked counseling kids and I continued to do some counseling, I quickly had a, a, broader aptitude for managing organizations and advocating, being a spokesperson. You know, so, you know, for whatever reason, and, and it wasn't my me being pushy, maybe it was just being, you know, I'd like to think dynamic and charismatic, but wherever I would go, I would get elected to be the head of the state association, you know, the chair of the board, that sort of thing. And so I realized that I had sort of a calling in, in taking a leadership role in that particular industry, and and uh, I was good at it. Did you ever? Did you and Linda ever contemplate starting your own family or having a family, especially when we did? We did, and uh, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, Linda could not have kids. Mm-hmm. And at the time that we contemplated adoption, which is when we live in Chicago, both of us were working full time. We had professional careers. And one of us would have had, you know, in, in, in fairness, would, would have had to stop work and, and take on that role. And in that particular time period, adoption was very, very difficult. And to be very candid, the adoption availability at that time was right. mostly for um, uh, special needs kids, children, to adopt special needs children. Sure. And as a first child, I didn't feel like that that was the right decision for me. And, in fact, I went – partially for a couple of years into therapy to try to work through that. Was there something wrong with me? Because I didn't want to take a special needs child as, as an adopted child. So maybe I made up a little bit for that, you know, on-air psychoanalysis by thrusting myself into, uh, you know, trying to build youth service agencies and working with uh, I think it's very and, 
it's very honest. It's very candid, and it's uh, I appreciate it. Um, I know just in observing how you speak to pe- young people, certainly my boys. Uh, you're very good with them. You're very engaging with them. You really speak to them on their level and treat them as with respect. And there's, I, I appreciate that. And that's clearly who you are, but also your experiences. And I always felt an, a, a responsibility when I was working in children and youth work to make sure that there were women and minorities in the staffs and the organizations that I run, ran. In Chicago, when I ran the Youth Network Council, there were, there, there were there were two or three white people on the staff, and the rest of the staff were minority uh, members. Sure, I felt that was important. If you're going to be working with minority populations, it shouldn't be this weird, this weird dichotomy of white people telling, you know, disadvantaged minorities what they should be doing with their lives. So I, I tried as much as possible to to promote and integrate, uh, uh, you know, minority staff into the operations, uh, even before it was politically fashionable to do that. Right, and then then. then my, oh, my, um, we, have, we, have, we have about four minutes left. <laughs> I was, what I was hoping to do is let's take us to the next role where you kind of transition to the, man, the leadership role, management, and business. Yeah, exactly. well, a couple of things, a couple of quick things to, just to share. So I got, started getting some media exposure in Chicago. Uh, Phil Donahue, who was uh, you know, Oprah's predecessor and probably the hottest TV personality, right. he, and I co- he asked me to co-produce about four or five shows on youth work with him. Really? And so we, yeah. So I was on the air with him on three or four shows. And in fact, um, I, I was asked by the today show on one of those shows to fly to New York with Phil and do a 10 minute segment on the today show with, uh, with Phil when, uh, when, um, uh, Tom Brokaw was the host of the today show. So that was my, that was my five minute claim to fame. I was on the it's Phil Donahue show the same day I was on the today show. And, uh, and, um, my parents got to see both of those on the same day. That's incredible. This is in this is at the height of when Phil Donahue was. Oh, he was the hottest show around. It was the hottest right. talk show around. And Tom broke up today. Same thing. Yeah, it was it was the height of both of the shows. It was very it was a very uh, um, uh, good, interesting experience for me. I had never done that before. And uh, but what ha- what happened was I started taking on greater leadership role in youth services, and. Uh, uh, I was asked to get involved in helping uh, uh, take a delegation to the World Forum of Students and Youth in Helsinki, in Helsinki, Finland, in 1981, and I was very excited. My first international business trip, and and then uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was president and uh, declared the Russia, Russia the evil empire and canceled all uh, trade uh, and dialogue and and uh, interactions between organizations at the time. So the, those of us that were going kind of got pissed off because we were all excited to meet our counterparts from all these other countries. So under the auspices of the YMCA of the USA, we put together an informal U.S. delegation and went over there and did this conference. And it was a, it was it was eye opening to me. And as a result of that, the formative group that was there representing the U.S. delegation helped form an organization, another organization called the American Center for International Leadership that was designed to bring emerging leaders of the United States in contact with their counterparts in other in other uh, countries around the world, particularly countries where we didn't have uh, um, great diplomatic relationship. This is called, you know, sort of back channel uh, diplomacy. And we got the Eli, Eli Lilly and Cummins Engine and Rockefeller Brothers and Ford Foundation all put up money to help support this organization. I didn't go to work for them, but I was a board member uh, through their entire existence. And was at one point chairman of the board. How how old were you when you started doing this work? This is the early eighties. Yeah, early eighties. So it really uh, it really kind of thirties. Yeah, yeah. I was I was getting old to be a young leader, but I was you know I was like thirty thirty one thirty two years old. Amazing. I mean, it's just a lot of responsibility at at a young age, and and you continue to get so much respon have so much responsibility. You know, and uh, yes, and I, I, I started taking delegations of young American leaders to places like Russia, you know, where, where no one was going. You know, there were very few Americans ever allowed in at that time. And we would take 15 Americans for two weeks into the Soviet Union, which it was in those days. And then we'd host a delegation from the Soviet Union 
our group brought Boris Yeltsin to the United States uh, for the first time he was ever in the U.S. and took him around. And he was a seminal figure because he was the transitional leader after Gorbachev that allowed democracy to, uh, you know, sink its roots into uh, uh, Soviet Union, break it into uh, the republics and separate countries and, right, right, right. Uh, and keep democracy going until Putin got his hands on things. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's take a quick break. Our guest is our co-host, Arnie Sherman. We're telling his life story. <laughs> 45 minutes goes by pretty quickly. Anyway, yes, it does. back after this. All right, we are back with our final quick segment with Arnie Sherman. Arnie, we've told a lot right now in the life story of Arnold Sherman. What are we going to learn next week? Well, I think we're going to go from how I, how we... I began doing international work to the point where now I've traveled to and worked in over 100 countries, you know, dealing with uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, helping uh, U.S. companies work around the world. My uh, my transition from all that to coming to Montana to teach at the University of Montana and help, uh, you know, build the Montana World Trade Center. And then, uh, you know, my life since then, because I ended doing that, you know, six years ago. Arnie has a real right, and this is the we're gonna, the best is yet to come, ladies and gentlemen. I think so. The more interesting things, the one that I think would resonate with our audience the most, have happened over the last period of time from then till now. Exactly, and we'll leave it at there. You know what, Arnie? I will see you and speak to you next week. Looking forward to it, Scott. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know. I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.